Hello, everybody, and welcome to Taiwan Plus on ICRT. It's an interview series brought to you by Taiwan's only all-English video streaming platform and all-English radio station. I'm Trevor Tordemasi, and joining us in the studio today we have Toby Openshaw. Hi, thank you very much for having me here. Of course, uh, Toby, can you introduce yourself real quick? I'm a documentary filmmaker, um, photographer. Been in Taiwan for 23 years now. So you've done this before. I've, I've done this before. <laughs> Um, your most recent work has focused mainly on the indigenous peoples of Taiwan. Um, so, can you tell us about your work? I got connected with the indigenous people in Taiwan about 12 years ago or so. Before I came here, I was working in Namibia as a as a filmmaker and dealing with indigenous people there. And then I came here and started hearing the stories about the issues and struggles that indigenous people were having here in terms of the colonial past and trying to recapture their language and their culture and uh, some kind of autonomy. And I realized that the issues are really pretty much the same for indigenous groups around the world, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's a pattern that is very common, sort of being colonized and then having to dig yourself out of that again. And so um, I've been working on documentary stuff, depending on who's the client, but mostly engaging with things like indigenous hunting rights, which is like really a nexus for language, culture, land, all of those kind of things. And uh, also on the side, doing some academic work and writing about that. So really getting into that topic now. I'm sure there's there's common struggles all across the world for indigenous peoples everywhere. But is there anything that you've learned that you feel is quite unique to Taiwan so far? Well, uh, uh, Taiwan indigenous people say, you know, they were colonized twice, right? You know, once by the by the Japanese and then by the Han people. So, but I do think that they have maintained their language and culture better than many of many other groups have, and they are in a very exciting phase right now in terms of um, gaining the political power to um, make sure that they can actually work on those things and get those things back. And so it's a, it's a very exciting time to be in because this is a group that is really working on and, and getting some success in, uh, in dealing with their issues. So, of course, you're trying to achieve so much by getting the word out there and helping these people tell their stories. Where else have we seen these kinds of documentaries really get work done? Well, um, that's actually one of the reasons why I'm also doing uh, more academic stuff, because I'm, I'm sort of, you know, in, in academia, there's this divide between practitioner and academic. And, and I'm, I'm trying to sort of get somewhere in between there, because actually uh, academics getting together at conferences and listening to each other and drawing up papers and making submissions to government, that does get um, work done and that gets new perspectives out. But I always, always have to be careful also that, you know, you sort of say getting the, the people's stories out, but I have to make sure that I am not just yet another old white guy telling somebody else's story, you know. So I try to include as much as possible of indigenous people's own stories and angles and 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 just be, uh, being able to um, uh, facilitate people to tell their own stories because it's not my story to tell so with your projects in uh, indigenous peoples in Taiwan and around the world um, what makes you so interested in this well, that's an interesting question because I come from South Africa I'm a white Afrikaner male and that means that I carry the baggage of the sins of apartheid you know, and so when I, wherever I am, I kind of 
don't want that baggage. I kind of don't want. If people say, "Oh, you must," um, you know, honor your culture. I'm like, which part of of the culture? The part that suppressed black people in my country for for decades, you know, for generations. No, I don't want to be a part of that. But then dealing with indigenous people, and especially indigenous youth, who are fighting so hard to recapture what they've lost. And to to bring that back, that that thing that they that gives them their identity and tells them who they are, I, I just find that really inspiring. In 2014, Taiwan saw the rise of the Sunflower Movement. Um, a lot of us remember that viscerally.、Uh, it was a protest movement that was driven by students against a trade pact that would let.、Uh, Taiwan be more vulnerable to pressure from China,、um, and so you were there in the thick of it. Do you remember what was the moment that you realized this was something you wanted to capture and document? Back in South Africa, I dealt with with、um, protests a lot, and protests in South Africa could get very violent. And so when I heard that there was a big protest going on, I was worried that that was going to be the result. But I I felt I needed to go and, and cover this, and.、Um, When I、uh, when I sort of came around the corner there in front of the the legislative yearn and there was just a sea of people and there was a group of students on the on the roof sort of waving their phones and the people、uh, were singing everybody was singing shall we hear the people sing from Les Mis you know that sort of <laughs> protest song and it was just beautiful and it was just such a moment you know and、um, and then also when I saw even within the first days. Uh, how they had set up in the streets things like、um, charging stations for phones, and there were water stations, and people were helping each other and、uh, and protecting each other. And I, I realized that this was something quite unique, and、uh, and I really I decided to spend as much time there as I possibly can. I wasn't there, you know, all the time, and I only made it into the legislative end、uh, once or twice. But、uh, I was shooting for、uh, France 24, a French news agency at that time. And also a, a an international、um, stock news agency, and you know the main thing about that was just、um, the especially the stock news people. They only wanted violence. They wanted clashes with police. That's all they were interested in seeing. And、um, I kept on trying to explain to them that this is really what this is not about. You know, and、mm. that that that、um, everybody keeping things under control, and the police maintaining their line, and the students maintaining their line. That was the the story. And、uh, it took a while before they realized, or before they were willing to accept some of my material that that highlighted that part. And what have you seen sort of start to change since that movement? So look, you know, the the sunflower movement. In my opinion, there are of course many people who who say, "Oh, they didn't really achieve much." But okay, my opinion personally,、uh, the political landscape in Taiwan changed forever. After the sunflowers,、um, young people realize that they actually have the power; that they can, without violence, make their voices heard and actually bring about change. The people of Taiwan realize that yes, they can challenge their government again in a civilized way and come out and show their support. You know, on that one Sunday, there were over five hundred thousand people out on the street. Now we've seen much bigger numbers later with Hong Kong. But it was an amazing moment that day when there were all these people in the street, and so I would say President Tsai Ing-wen got elected on a wave of support after the the sunflowers, and、um, the days when people thought that young people in Taiwan are、uh, little soft strawberries or that can be, easily be squeezed.、Um, 
it is past because I really think that young people showed that when it comes to it, it comes down to it, they will show up and they will stand their line um, to to make things better in this country. Last year, you spoke at a global Taipei dialogue about Taiwan's soft power in sort of media, the media landscape, um, the media industry in Taiwan. What are other next steps in uh, Taiwan utilizing its soft power? Oh, you know, that's a big, big question because I think many people in Taiwan have still not really grasped the concept of what soft power really means. Mm-hmm. And you know, we we talked about podcasts, right? Every time someone outside of Taiwan listens to something or watches something that says, "Hey, Taiwan is a cool place. Taiwan has a functioning, vibrant democracy." It's cool people here. They're LGBT friendly, like you know, all the good stuff. Is somebody who the next time they see or hear something from someone else saying, you know, Taiwan needs to be brought under the heel, will say, "Hey, no, that's not how I see it," you know. And uh, you mentioned bureaucracy, and I think we all agree. In all of us who've lived in Taiwan a long time, is that bureaucracy is a major issue, and that uh, trying to break those things down, whether it's in the film uh, commission or you know the film archives, all of those places have blocks, roadblocks when you try to access funding, information, support, whatever. Some countries have had. Uh, official government support for those kind of development projects, with mixed results. In the UK, the lottery uh, allotted some money to mm-hmm. filmmakers, to young filmmakers. And after a few years, people said, "Oh, but those movies are all bad," you know. But the point is that you, as a young filmmaker, you have to make your couple of bad movies so that you can learn the craft and 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 do better, you know. So. I've tried to form to to start a, a short film development project that we just we we invited twelve uh, screenwriters to submit. We chose four scripts and we made those four short ten minute films, and then we showed them at the Urban Nomad Film Festival as a block. And it's great; it was a lovely little project. But I did it completely out of my own pocket and out of my own uh, out of my own initiative. It's always that issue where where what do you do for development? And so I don't necessarily. Suggest that the government should give funding and run projects like that themselves, but they should at least promote projects like that. And and tied to that, I also always like to you know beat the drum of there's not enough indigenous filmmakers in Taiwan. My plan is, my dream is to bring a group of Maori film students from New Zealand to come over here. They're all Australasians. They 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 feel a connection. Maoris have been doing this for much longer, so they have an established film culture, storytelling culture through film. So bring those young people here, match them up with a group of young indigenous filmmakers, and have them workshop and produce four short films—the same kind of thing. And wow, you've shown a group of young indigenous people that filmmaking is something you can actually do. It's doable.、Uh, you can tell stories. You can tell intercultural or interrelational stories because you know Maori people will have different issues, but also have similar issues. Or your contemporary issues, or your past issues—you know those kind of things. But trying to get funding or support for that has been basically just doesn't doesn't happen. You know, so there's a lot of bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah. the yeah. world is full of channels now,、mm. right? So when I was starting in filmmaking, there were only the big. Uh, television channels. That was、mm. your only only option. So you had to rent very expensive gear,、um, get in somehow, 
you get commissioned to make a film for Nat Geo or Discovery or whatever. And if you got in, you were lucky and you got it made. And if you didn't, then, you know, your film played the small festival circuit. And that's where people saw it. And especially for documentary stuff, there, there wasn't really a market for that, you know. Um, nowadays, anybody can get a decent camera, you know, like even just the cameras that you see here in the studio, are, you can go and make a movie with those, you know. But we thought that this was going to democratize filmmaking, right? It's now accessible to anybody, so now anybody can make a film. The problem is now everybody is making a film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? And so uh, the filters that were in place in order to uh, ensure a, a certain quality of product have gone away. But the market for any kind of level of product has increased, but only so much. So... You've got so many people trying to make it in the in the world, and you know, like with with podcasts, for instance, is probably the best example now. Um, so accessible, it's, it's so accessible, yeah. and yet so hard to really build a decent audience. And yeah. this has been the problem again since day one when people started with publishing or making films or whatever. They write the book and they get it printed, and it sits on the shelf, and they go, "Yeah, I print, wrote the book." Or they make a film, and the tape, the VHS tape, sits there, and say, "Yay, I made a film." And then it stops there. And it's like, no, you've got to market the thing. And that's been, as I say, if most people who want to be creatives and want to tell a story and make a film or write a book or whatever it is, create a podcast, fall short in the, in the marketing department. So as you're the founder and host of a reoccurring gathering called Filmmaker Nights Taipei, teaching a lot of young filmmakers, uh, what do you tell them about this? How do you get them to go out there well so what i do with type a filmmaker nights is i get uh people to come and talk about their projects that's that's really what it is it's a every two months we get together at the rendezvous and we have a guest speaker which is usually a filmmaker or a producer or someone in the film business and then when i invite them to come and speak i always say what i'd like for you to talk about is the challenges you have and how you overcome them and almost never do they talk about the technical challenges they have because we can all anybody with a bit of experience can deal with the technical challenges and so then they talk about how they got their film seen how they got it promoted and so on so you know vincent soberano and his wife um sarah yeah we sarah. interviewed her here too yeah oh there you go you yeah, know yeah, so exactly. they've got their movie out on netflix you know mm -hmm. so fantastic for them so uh so yeah so we invite people like that to come and tell us how they did it what do you see for taiwan's future in in filmmaking um so again uh, my my angle is only as a as a foreign expat resident in Taiwan mm -hmm. uh, the the Taiwan filmmaking scene is a, is a you know a, a organism all, all its own and so so Ho Shao Xian and those guys you know started way long ago and then I remember I did a, a this uh, an interview for um, Discovery some many years ago with um, Tsai Ming Liang and a couple of other then young and upcoming uh, directors and producers and yeah, at that point, they were still saying, oh, if I put a gay character in my film, then it will be seen, you know, then it will get, get attention. And so I'm seriously hoping that it's gone beyond that. But I was on the Urban Nomad um, selection committee for, for a few years, and uh, I really saw some young student filmmakers making stuff that I thought was brave and, and, and you know, uh, was, yeah, really, really had something to say. So... 
I think the writers are getting there. Writing is always the first thing for a film. If you don't have a good script, you've got nothing. Uh, writers are coming out and the young filmmakers are coming out who are willing to take a, a chance. But you always have the problem that in Taiwan you've got X number of people who, who watch movies. And then these days all of that is even off the board because uh, people don't go to cinemas right now. And it's not clear at all whether they're going to go back at all. So now you have to pitch to your YouTube channel or to the Netflixes and the, 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 the online um, channels of the world. So where can people find more of your work? I have squatted on about four different websites that I never <laughs> developed. Um, uh, you know, just like I, I'm, I'm too, too busy making films to either make a website or to... Um, uh, make a show reel, you know. So um, I'm afraid you just have to Google my name. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it's a unique ability to have someone Google your name and find your work. Yeah. Um, also, uh, people can go to Filmmaker Nights, Taipei. Yes. So that's every um, second month on the second Sunday of the month. So our next one will be in uh, February, like the 13th. And Epidemic providing? Yes, yeah. yes. If the pandemic does not provide, then we may do a Zoom event. I've done Zoom events before and they were pretty successful. I have a few surprises in terms of filmmakers who's going to come up and, and that I would like to invite. So, Okay, well, uh, thank you again for joining us in the studio today. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure, always. And this has been Taiwan Plus on ICRT. See you next time.